Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 216, Love and Marriage. May I just remind you all that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. To find out more, go to the website agorapodcastnetwork.com. This week then on the History of England, I think we will make a detour from the highway of diplomacy and matters of high politics and divert down the low way to tell more about a love story that's okay with you. Hope it's not a problem. If it is, sorry and all that, too late. But there will be a bit of politics, obviously. Last week, the skies were blue for Harry and Cathy. 1514 was not, however, to go as expected. First was yet another personal tragedy. Poor Catherine suffered yet another miscarriage. No little prince was on its way to further the dynasty. In February 1514, Henry's agents in Spain and the Low Countries began to hear nasty little rumours about Ferdinand of Aragon. Nothing terribly specific at this point, but rumours suggesting that Ferdinand's commitment to crushing France like a bug may not be quite the 110% he'd assured them, though actually Ferdinand's maths was anyway probably better than that. To Henry's horror and fury, it soon became clear that Ferdinand had once more cheated and betrayed Henry. Ferdinand had only gone and done a deal with the French, hadn't he? What? Not only that... Ferdinand had then done some sidling in the Maximilian direction and talking the Emperor into agreeing a peace with France to boot, in the words of John McEnroe. Oh, come on, you cannot be serious! But there was worse. Oh, yes, there was even worse. Pope Leo had then also been persuaded and Maximilian had told Louis that Henry was up for it as well and put his name on the truce. Well, Henry, as you can imagine, was furious, absolutely hopping mad. For a third time, his father-in-law had cynically deserted him and made him look like an innocent and a chump. 
There's a rather nice quote from the Spanish ambassador saying how he was treated at the English court. Quote, Like a bull at whom everyone throws darts. Interestingly, there was even a rumour that went round that Henry would take out his fury on his Spanish wife and put her aside. The very first suspicion of the later dramas. This time, Henry turned to his new right hand, to Thomas Wolsey, who had now incidentally also become Archbishop of York to add to his list of jobs. What were they going to do about this then? For once, Henry had fully understand what had just happened to him. Pope Leo X's agents were rash-like in their attentions. Caroff, the Spanish ambassador, was following his master's commands and telling Henry anything he could to convince Henry to come to terms with France and that his master had only been acting in good faith. Maximilian told me you'd agreed to a truce, he whined. The only thing the Spanish ambassador didn't bother with was anything that might remotely resemble the truth. Meanwhile, French agents were oiling under the royal doors and making peace overtures from their king, Louis XII. The English response this time was rather different than previously. Gone was the rolling over and the invitation to have the royal tummy tickled. For one thing, Henry was genuinely livid. And who can blame the lad? Why was the world like this? But maybe the other thing was that now there was a mind of some genius to help the young king. In this situation, as in many, it's difficult to know where the animus came from. Was this Henry? Was this Wolsey? How far were the English playing a game in what happened next? The first reaction was to insert fleas into the ears of various ambassadors. No one was left, in any doubt, that Henry was not a happy Hector. Well, whatevs, they would have said. Who cares? Bothered, and all that sort of thing. Next thing was to make it absolutely clear that there would be no backsliding from the English. Oh, dearie me, no. They'd still be going to war. Very publicly and ostentatiously, a Swiss delegation was welcomed to London and in a great fanfare. A treaty was signed whereby the Swiss would make contingents of their famous pikemen available to the King of England for the next ten years. England would not stoop to the dishonour to which Ferdinand, Maximilian and Leo had fallen. Nope. England would honour her commitments. And true to form, in June 1514, a small army was indeed landed on the French coast near Cherbourg to carry out a little light ravaging. It could be that this was just the gut reaction of a young, wounded and disappointed king who just tasted the fruits of glory and realised that the fruit at his lip was rotten. But it could have been artifice. It could well have been that Wolsey and Henry looked at each other and said, Right, we've been right royally shafted here and there is naff all we can do about it. There's no way England can take on France tout seul. But what we can do is get the best possible deal with France because deal with France is what we're now going to have to negotiate. So best to have at least an element of fear in the hearts of the French negotiators. Let us rattle the sabre. And so the sabre was duly rattled, or at least the billhook, or the pike. Whatever the motivation, Wolsey would later boast, I was the author of this piece. Nothing like blowing your own trumpet then. Behind the scenes, faction was still at work. The chinless nobility on the council, Norfolk, his son Surrey, Buckingham, Northumberland, Brandon, or Suffolk as I shall now call him, the other noblemanians. They all wanted to charge into war to defend the king's honour. Wolsey, Fox, they laboured for peace, both from conviction in the case of Fox and policy in the case of Wolsey. The defeat of the noble faction in the decision that Henry made about the right approach to take would be complete. There would be no war. The chinless ones would never forget Wolsey his victory. They would never forgive Wolsey his birth. It is one of the many unattractive features of the Howards that they would pursue both Wolsey and later Cromwell with relentless hatred, 
not just in the name of power politics, but also in the name of class war. Well, obviously, the concept of class war is an anachronism, but you know what I mean. Walls' existence violated the great chain of being. While I am mid-warble, I will say that it is greatly to Henry's credit, on the other hand, that he chose men he thought could do the job, had the required greatness of mind and talent, and in this he was much more modern and equitable than his noble companions. This time the peace party was helped by Henry's desire for battle and glorious conflict. I realise this sounds odd, and yet it was so. Henry was swamped with fury at the diplomatic working over he'd received at Ferdinand's hands and indeed Maximilian's hands. You might remember, Maximilian had effectively done nothing to earn all those subsidies England had given him, though at least he had had the grace to come and be nice to Henry and flatter his ego. Henry couldn't really go to war against either of the faithless, twisted dipsticks, or at least not yet. But what he could do was to engineer the kind of dramatic diplomatic about turn in which Ferdinand had previously been the master, and would at least give both of them the glimpse of the silvery orb of the royal buttock, or figuratively, at least. So, within weeks of the light summer ravaging of the coast of France, the world was treated to the delight of an Anglo-French peace. Louis XII was desperate for peace. He wanted to spend his time in Italy, not in England. The wine was better, there was pasta. And who wanted to put up with meat and potato pie and all that gravy? Didn't they know it's called jus? And so Henry and Wolsey landed quite a peace deal. Henry would have to give up the town of Therouanne, but he would keep Tournai. And that annual stipend of 100,000 French crowns that Henry VII had been given by France, that would resume. And that would be very welcome, given the hideous kicking the royal finances had received from the feet of Ares. And there would be a royal marriage with Louis XII. Now, if you didn't already feel a deep sense of horror at the merciless trading of women in the marriage market of the world, let me try this one on you. The proposed bride was Henry's sister, the Princess Mary. Mary was now 18 and promised to the heir to a fair proportion of Europe, the 14-year-old Charles of Castile. Now, possibly, a 14-year-old boy would be initially unexciting to an 18-year-old woman, inferior in every way as us males are reputed to be in our teenage years. And he did have a chin the size of a dinner plate, but hey, at least he was young. Mary had for months now been in excited preparation for the marriage, with a massive household appearing around her, the building of a truly epic trousseau, and a thrilling correspondence with Charles's aunt, Margaret of Austria. Sounds like a book. Charles's aunt. Anyway. Whereas Louis XII, well, Louis XII was in his 50s. And let me tell you, I know from personal experience that blokes in their 50s are no longer in the first flush of beauty at the best of times. In Louis's case, this was not the best of times. This was mm, the worst of times. Louis was reputedly on his last legs, gouty, syphilitic, toothless. He also had an odd skin complaint, scurvy-like, rumoured to be leprosy. This is not the love story. Seriously, it's a classic beauty and the beast territory. But there's no handsome prince underneath the beastie bit, just more beast and a bit of dribble. While Mary was fated as one of the most beautiful in Europe, now people have a tendency to warble about royal princesses and their beauty. It really doesn't pay to insult royalty in any way, shape or form. There's no future in it. But the peons to Mary's beauty are widespread and enduring, to pick one at random. Nature never formed anything so beautiful, was Erasmus's take on it. Well... You can imagine the conversation between Henry and his sis. It was a difficult sell, let's put it that way. 
Mary kicked up the very best fuss she could, but all to no avail. She was packaged, stitched and sold. She was forced to renounce her marriage to the young Charles. Louis XII, meanwhile, was finding it difficult to stop dribbling, so he demanded a quick proxy marriage, and the French Duc de Longueville acted as the king's proxy and pressed his bare foot to the young princess's skin, skin to skin, and by so doing, the marriage was declared consummated, and the deal was done. For Henry, it was some sort of revenge for his lacerated pride. For Louis, it was peace, the chance to concentrate on Italy and a beautiful young bride. For Mary... Oh, dear. Well, at least she wouldn't be short of a bob or two. But she would claim to also have extracted a promise from her big brother that next time, if there was a next time, she would be able to choose her own husband, marry for love, happy ever after, all of that. Charles of Castile, by the way, was not happy and threw a bit of a paddy, by all accounts. I am young. You have plucked me at your pleasure and I knew not how to complain. Bear in mind that for the future I shall pluck you. Something to look forward to then. I am conscious that we are hardly in the realm of the broad sweep of world political history here, so if the detail's killing you, do write and yell at me. But on the 13th of September, the Earl of Worcester acted as Mary's proxy in Paris. I mention this because in the Earl of Worcester, we once more have a Beaufort kicking around the place. He was the legitimised bastard son of the third Duke of Somerset. Does that take you back? Back to the glory days of the Wars of the Roses. He'd been made Earl of Worcester this very year as part of that round of chivalric rewards for the victories in France. Louis was desperate for his young bride to arrive since an unseemly pool of dribble was collecting at his feet. So off Mary Paul Lamb set in September 1514 with all of London there to see her go. All the merchants of every nation went to the court. The Queen of France desired to see them all and give her hand to each of them. Please don't make me go. Please don't make me go. She wore a gown in the French fashion of woven gold. She is very beautiful, and has not her match in all of England. She was accompanied by an array of the great and the good, and a vast procession went to Dover, where the parting stopped and the storms descended. Eventually, the princess was cast aground and had to be carried to the French shore at Boulogne, Then we get the traditional chivalric and accidental meeting in a forest. Mary apparently blew a kiss at the old guy, which he understood not at all, and instead he, quote, kissed her as kindly as if he had been five and twenty, which he wasn't, of course. The marriage was completed on the 9th of October, and with all the public weirdness of the 16th century, the happy couple were put to bed, and Louis bounced out the following day with the traditional laddish boast that he had, quote, crossed the river three times that night and would have done more had he chosen. Yeah, right. What we do know is that he was then laid up for two weeks with a nasty attack of gout. Poor Mary. Louis dismissed most of her party within days, and her letters to Henry show her misery and loneliness. But she did her duty through her marriage and coronation, and everyone remarked on her demeanour. The Dauphin, the heir to the French throne, was a young man called Francis. Francis could have been Henry. Henry could have been Francis. These were both men of enormous physical energy, Intelligent and educated, ambitious, thirsty for glory. Franny was three years younger than Henry, 20 years old, and very probably not a happy bunny at hosting a bunch of English folk at the coronation, given that those English folk were without doubt dropping the word spurs into every possible conversation, as in, ooh, have you seen my new spurs? Aren't they lovely? Don't need to show me yours, monsieur. 
I saw them when you were running away like a hare last year. That sort of thing. So he organised a tournament. The idea was that he'd ferret out the finest French knights and give the English lot a kicking in the lists, and that would win back a bit of honour. And, if things weren't going well, he had a plan B. He'd brought over a massive brute of a German knight. He'd encase him in shiny metal, and no one would know he wasn't French, and if things went wrong, he'd send him out to pummel the English. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, predictably, it was Charles Brandon, newly Duke of Suffolk, who led the English team. Mary would have sat and watched them fight for ten days, which must have brought back memories of England, since she'd constantly done the same back there watched her brother's favourite gloriously pummel the leading knights of England in the lists. Which is exactly what happened here too. Brandon and indeed the Marquis of Dorset were unstoppable and the French chivalry fell to their lance. So, Francis called in his German, who was sent in to settle things on penalties, but Charles unhorsed him. The German would have none of that and landed several big hits on Charles as they fought on foot, so Charles grabbed him round the neck and, quote, pummeled him around the head so that blood issued out of his nose. Result! England beat Germany on penalties. In my dreams. Still, pretty painful for Francis, especially since word was out that he'd recruited a ringer. All of this, though, must have been even more painful for Mary, because when it was over, they all went home, leaving Mary alone again. But, as it happens, her servitude and duty would not last long because by January 1515, Louis XII was dead. Talk about out of the frying pan and into the fire. Now Mary might have thought of that promise she claimed to have extracted, that this time round she'd be able to marry the man of her dreams. Or maybe, possibly, perhaps, she'd just not marry at all. She had in front of her the fine example of Margaret of Savoie, otherwise known as Margaret of Austria. Margaret cut a figure to give all women hope. She was admittedly rich and famous, being Maximilian's daughter, so she'd had a good start in life. But as we've seen, the richest of women were traded back and forth on occasion. And the same was true of Margaret, who, rejected by Charles VIII of France, was sent to marry John of Athoriath, and then a man called Philibert. This is an odd name, but then, of course, as I learned from a parenting book I once read, labelling is disabling. I read said book while periodically shouting at the kids stop disturbing me while I read, which I found awfully symbolic. Anyway... Philibert died within just three years, and Margaret was apparently devastated and had to be restrained from throwing herself out of a window. But no one could restrain her from embalming her husband's heart and keeping it with her always. You. But, with all that behind her, Margaret vowed never to marry again and set off on a glorious 30-year career as one of the principal political forces in Europe. She was named Regent of the Netherlands and Guardian of Charles V, from the palace at Mechelen, just like Margaret of York, she ruled with competence and consistency. In 1515, Charles did rebel against her influence. He dumped her from the job, without, as far as I can see, any sensible performance review or opportunity to meet revised, detailed personal objectives. What kind of management style was that, hmm? A bad one, because within a year, Charles had recognised the error of his ways and Margaret was back as a governor of the Low Countries until her death in 1530. The point about all of this is that Margaret was an example to more than one princess or great lady, Princess Mary and Anne Boleyn in our particular story. 
She was a great patron of the arts, with her court visited by the great humanists of the age. She kept an enormous library, promoted music and the pictorial arts. Her court was a lodestone of both the chivalric ideal and the new learning of the Renaissance. She was livid when Henry broke with Charles and the Habsburgs, but reasonable enough to see the justice of his angry retort that it was not he that had broken faith, but Ferdinand. Whether Henry's sister Mary took inspiration from Margaret is difficult to know, but certainly she knew her and knew of her, and she needed Margaret's example to inspire her and give her courage, because she'd been visited by two friars from Catherine of Aragon. They brought the message that she should dump any idea of making her own choice now that Hubby was dead, Henry would have none of it. And that, in fact, Charles Brandon was on his way to France to continue the kippering process and stitch her up again with Charles of Castile, or maybe even with Francis I, the new French king. Despite the fact that he was married to Claude, Francis was making his interest quite clear, sniffing around her bedroom and giving her a level of interest Mary felt more than a little inappropriate. I do like the word inappropriate. It's a dead word, isn't it? A deeply, deeply appropriate word. The word of political correctitude and bureaucracy. It's been as useful to me over the last 30 years of corporate life as any other single word I can think of. Anyway, Mary wanted home. Mary wanted freedom. Mary had made her sacrifice, thank you very much, and didn't want to make another one. But she was in a situation so tricky that it boggled the mind. The French did not want to let her go because they wanted to keep her dowry and they wanted her not to go to the opposition, namely Charles. Henry wanted her as a diplomatic pawn and he wanted the jewels she'd been given as the new Queen of France. Charles Brandon wanted to marry anything that moved so long as it promised a good night out and came with a shed load of money and social status. The letters flew back and forth. The floors of the French palaces were a wash. They were a wash with a flood of hormones and human desire for money, glory, status, sex, honour and a good piece of lardy cake with your cup of tea. Seriously, people were wading through rivers of the stuff. Into this, a thought made itself known to Mary. Brandon. Now, Brandon was a good-looking sort of bloke, big shoulders, the king liked him. She'd been watching him as being Mr Butch hero type since she was a little girl. Could well be she'd nursed a flame for him for a while. And he could just possibly perhaps be a way out of the situation because he was politically unthreatening as far as Francis was concerned. He was neither Charles nor a king. It appears that Mary broached this carefully with Brandon. Well, the story is that she flung herself at him in a flood of tears, but we're going to assume that's just a bit of male embroidery, and you can visualise the encounter as you wish. Francis was no idiot. They were in a French palace, the walls had les oreilles, and he heard a whisper. He called Brandon into his bedchamber and accused him of planning to marry Mary. We are at the stage where everyone is fully aware that if you wanted to speak to Henry, it would be Wolsey you spoke to then. So Brandon wrote to Wolsey, because Brandon was also in a difficult spot. Clearly he wanted Mary. Who wouldn't? She was beautiful, educated, intelligent, determined, a queen, sister of a king. I mean, she was a catch. Anyone saying, "Mm, what about that young ward you're betrothed to already then? Would receive a blank look or a boot up the backside. But Brandon suspected that Henry would be as mad as a bag of frogs if he caught any suspicion of what Mary and Charles were planning. Mary was there to be used as a diplomatic pawn, not for his mates to marry. So Charles kind of tried to test the water. He took the heroic approach, that of blaming Mary. He told Wolsey that when Francis had accused him of trying to score with Mary, he'd replied, So I answered and said that I trusted his grace would not reckon so great a folly in me to come into a strange land and marry a queen of the realm without his knowledge. 
without authority from the king, my master. Good point. That would be daft. Watch this space. He then said Mary herself had gone and told Francis that she wanted to marry Brandon. I mean, come on, what could he do? How daft. Women, eh? Sure. I think the point was to kind of test Woolsey's reaction. Francis also let it slip, by the way, that he knew that Charles and Mary had a where word. A where word was the early modern phrase for a secret term of endearment, you know, like little rabbity babbity or snuggle bunny or pumpkiny wumpkiny, the sort of thing normally associated with vomit bags. Actually, Woolsey had managed to intercede with Henry, and although Henry dug in his heels, he'd majored on getting Mary's jewels rather than, no way, she's off to Spain to marry Charles. After all, Charles would probably not go along with it anyway. With a bit of patience, Henry appeared to be persuadable. But Mary and Charles didn't have any patience. On the 5th of March, 1515, Charles wrote to Woolsey. The Queen would never let me rest till I had granted her to be married. And so, to be plain with you, I've married her hurriedly and lain with her, so much that I fear that she's with child. Ha! Ah, ten master of chivalry points again. It was all Mary's fault. He also told Wolsey not to show the letter to Henry on any account and instead to just help him work it all out with Henry. Wolsey showed the letter to Henry, of course. Cursed to be the blind affection and counsel that hath brought ye hereunto, he spat back at Brandon, with a faint waft of roasted nobleman floating from the letter. Mary and Charles had really blown it this time. Henry was spitting feathers. No one went behind Henry's back without permission. No one. Wolsey had been working on it. Henry had been coming round. Now Wolsey warned Brandon and said, You are in, quote, the greatest danger that ever man was. Actually, to be fair to Brandon, it could well have been Mary and not Brandon who forced the issue. Mary wrote a stream of paper to Henry, so that if you laid it end to end, you could probably have walked on it over the channel. I exaggerate for effect, of course. She kept repeating that her brother had promised that she could choose. Henry never liked being reminded of the promises he'd made. She also wrote... I put my Lord Suffolk in choice, whether he would accomplish the marriage within four days, or else he should never have enjoyed me. Well, that's pressure for you. Mary had the bull by the proverbial horns. She signed pieces of paper like confetti to try and get out of this. She signed her dowry over to Henry. She signed her marriage portion over to the French king. She wanted out right now, and so Mary and Charles legged it to England. Letters preceded them like, I don't know, sound waves or radar. Mary was not just writing to Henry, she was writing to the whole council effectively because she knew they would also read those letters and she was laying out her case. I married Louis, she said, quote, for the advancement of said peace, even though he was very aged and sickly. And you, brother dear, you, condescended and granted, you would never provoke or move me but as mine own heart and mind should be best pleased. If her approach was to get the support of the council, she failed. This was a matter of state, not right and the pursuit of happiness. Henry sat with his council. Almost every one of them wanted Brendan executed or imprisoned. Thomas Howard, in particular, let it rip. Ever on the make, Norfolk saw a chance to stamp on a rival. Ever the class warrior, he saw a chance to squish a family that had risen from the mire. Mary's persuasion 
Brandon's grovelling and his previous friendship with the king, and in particular, Wolsey's emolling, saved them. Wolsey met the young couple at Dover and took them to Henry. Henry made his beloved sister and his old pal sweat for his good grace and forgiveness. They had to pay back £24,000 for the original wedding with Louis XII and give back all the plate and goodies she'd taken to France. If they failed to keep paying, they'd be fined £100,000. But then he forgave them, you old knucklehead. And in May 1515, they had yet another ceremony in London and Henry was there. Brandon then found a convenient excuse to take himself off to his estates just to let the fury subside a bit and keep a low profile. Mary and Charles started the serious business of baby-making. To be honest, I can't claim there are any great consequences of all of this politically. There were some. Brandon was from here on very much indebted to Wolsey for his support and was basically in his pocket for a while until he finds an ally in Anne Boleyn. But Brandon was soon back at the King's Council. Here was one of the very rare friendships of Henry's that seemed to survive the pressure of politics. There won't be many of those, let me tell you. Since I have inflicted a sort of love story of you, of sorts, let me give you a final dash of diplomacy ere we leave for the week. We started this affair with Henry's fury at Ferdinand and an Anglo-French alliance on the bounce. But the arrival on the French throne of Francis on the 1st of January 1515 would eventually change all of that. Francis will be our companion for many a year. We should talk about him. Francis, as I said, was just three years younger than Henry and therefore came to the throne at the grand old age of 21. He shared a lot of similarities with Henry. He was young, at the head of a powerful nation. He considered himself a Renaissance prince without peer. He also had a remarkably big nose, but he didn't let that get in the way of his ambition to bring Italy to submission, to build the most glorious court in all of Europe, cut everyone to ribbons in the joust, dance, feast, and have more sex than was feasible on the way. Both Henry and Francis individually had very high opinions of themselves. Henry saw himself as the boss who could control the Pope and through his alliance with the Swiss controlled the passes over the Alps between France and Italy. With remarkable pomposity, he once said of Francis, for example, If I choose, he will cross the Alps, and if I choose, he will not. Francis also saw himself as Europe's puppet master, who would have Henry eating out of his hands. Now, in the short term, Francis and Henry did appear to keep the Anglo-French alliance going. It was renewed in April 1515, for example. But it was always going to be a rocky road. Francis meddled in Scottish politics against Henry's wishes, but in line with the old alliance. As a result, the Duke of Albany became regent and Margaret Tudor, the Queen of Scots and Henry's sister, was forced to flee with her son James to England in 1515. Francis promoted the cause of Richard de la Poole, the White Rose of York. All of this meant strain between Henry and Francis above the obvious young blood rivalry thing. And then in September, Francis committed the ultimate crime, because Francis did what Henry would have literally chopped his arm off for. He became a hero of war. He created a new crossing over the Alps. He dragged a massive artillery train with him, and with the German Landsknechts, French gendarme, and his artillery, he won a massive battle and broke the power of the Swiss at the northern Italian battle of Marignano. Quite apart from the diplomatic consequences of a resurgent France, the battle ushered in new requirements for military success. The pike alone no longer ruled. It would be a combination of pike, artillery and cavalry that would set the standard from here on in. For Henry, this was basically FOMO. 
Beset by French influence, he forgot his rage against Ferdinand. He was back in the diplomatic market. Next week, then, is a week off, unless you're a member, in which case it is a week on, because every week is a week on for Shedcast members. Oh, yes! Next, the members have a double episode on the medieval tournament in all its glory, honour and magnificence. We also have the start of the new era, members' quizzes. So roll up, roll up, gentle non-members, sign up at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. If not, have a lovely fortnight, everyone, anyway. Thanks a million for listening for your comments on iTunes, the website, Facebook and all that. And see you again in a fortnight for the Cardinal's Hat. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 